according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures, as always. Join me, if you would, in Luke 15. Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. Parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Or as it says in our Harmony of the Gospels, parables of the lost sheep, coin, and the prodigal son. Which I always have found interesting because I don't think he's the story. I think his father's the story as far as uh, the episode is concerned. Yes, the the younger son has a component to it. The older son has a component to it. In fact, uh, there's a pastor out in, uh, I believe it's Tucson, Arizona, if I'm not mistaken, Pastor Pittman, who uh, taught a series, 115 lessons on the prodigal son's older brother. And uh, I thought, you know, I want to get a hold of that series. If he's got that on DVD or something, get the MP3 files. What an opportunity. All right, Luke chapter 15. All the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Well, there's the biggest public scandal of them all. How about that? All right, before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that as believer priests we are filled with the Holy Spirit and prepared to handle spiritual truth. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and we thank you for today, the, the blessing that we have on this day to assemble together for prayer, to come together for instruction. And Father, we ask for a setting aside of distractions and any subjectivity of our, our, our own making, Father, our own daydreaming, imagination, worries, whatever it might be, Father, lock every thought, uh, take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. Humble us, Father, under the authority of your word. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. This is episode 23, if you are tracking the Harmony of the Gospels. Episode 23 in the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus. And it comes right on the heels of chapter 14. And you recall, as chapter 14 was coming to an end, he challenged them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And it turns out the ones with ears to hear were not the religious leaders. They were the tax collectors and the sinners. And in fact, the religious leaders had problems with it (laughs) as far as that goes. Point one then, three parables teach and emphasize the grace of God in restoring the lost. And depending on how you break it down, you either view this chapter as three parables or you view it as one parable told three times. I think I prefer to think of it in that way. Uh, But three parables teach and emphasize the grace of God in restoring the lost. And uh, different pastors break it down different ways. Different scholars approach it different ways. I tend to think of it simply as the same story told with three chapters, three episodes in three different contexts. There's one that appeals to the men, the workplace, shepherding, things of that nature, danger and combat on the, on the, high, he, on the high hills and so forth. One that appeals to the women in terms of the home and the lost coin. We'll deal with that. And then one that applies to all humanity because it references a loving father and his beloved son and and what happens when we are uh, out of fellowship and need to be restored to fellowship and the relationship there. So uh, you can view this as either three separate parables or one parable told three times. Either way, if you get the point, then you've gotten the point and the chapter has done its job. But this is uh, these are messages of grace. The uh, interestingly enough, as I said a moment ago, it is the tax collectors and the sinners that have ears to hear. It is the tax collectors and sinners that have the ears to hear, not the religious leaders, not the scribes and the Pharisees. He that has an ear, let him hear. And I love the grace approach to Bible class, the grace approach to ministry. And uh, anyone that's positive to the teaching of the Word of God is welcome to sit and learn in the lampstand of of, of a local church. That's the way that it works. And there's no uh, dress code. There's no uh, membership requirements. There's no uh, financial uh, uh, class and and all the rest. And and, uh, it was definitely a feature in the ancient world. And it is still to this day in many parts of the world where your social status is... Uh, a determinate factor whether you're welcome in a building or not. 
thank the Lord that uh, such a thing, well, it's kind of minimized in our culture anyway, but uh, even within, still, within American culture, there are classes and some folks that look down their noses on other folks and, and things of that nature. Well, praise God that it does not happen in a Bible teaching, doctrinal type local church such as here. If you want to hear the Word of God, then by all means, come sit down and hear the Word of God. You're all welcome. And that's, uh, that's the way that it works. So it does make an interesting contrast when you look back to chapter 14 and verse 35. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so who starts showing up? You know, well, he just opened it up and said, hey, you want Bible class? Come here, Bible class. And it's a great provision for anyone that, uh, and obviously the ears is what you get when you are born again, that you are spiritually alive. Your human spirit is made alive. You have the ears to hear. You also have the eyes to see. You also hear, you also receive the heart to understand. What a contrast, though, because the Pharisees and scribes, uh, they have mouths to grumble. I left a word out on that screen. The Pharisees and scribes have mouths to grumble. You, what do you have? You have ears to hear or do you have a mouth to complain? What is it? See, and for the tax collectors and the scribes, or for the tax collectors and sinners, they had ears to hear. The Pharisees and scribes simply had mouths to grumble. And there's the contrast. We use this a lot, too, with respect to children. And, and even a young child can learn this. It's an illustration. God built in the illustration uh, from Scripture that tells us we're to be quick to hear and slow to speak, right? God built that into our very uh, physiology, and a young child can understand that, that the reason why you have two ears and only one mouth, <laughs> all right, you should spend twice the amount of time listening and less time talking. And that's uh, the benefit there, see? And, and that's, of course, consistent with Scripture. Let each man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. The... Uh, imperatives that we have there so th this is the contrast that sets it up now the conflict i think everyone's so eager to get to the stories and to get to the the excitement and joy about lost things being found right sheep gets lost sheep gets found hooray we're happy coin gets lost coin gets found hooray we're happy right uh son out there being an idiot, comes back to his senses, uh, we're happy, all right? And the same message told all three times is important that we grasp it, but we cannot lose sight of the conflict that launched the story in the first place. Because the conflict that launches the story in the first place is right here. The conflict uh, in terms of these hooty-tooty, highfalutin, prideful, better-than-thou Pharisees that don't want the wrong sort of people to be a part of them, see. In fact, they deny that they are. They're not a part of them. And all of the pride that the Jews would have towards the Gentiles, the Pharisees would have towards other Jews that were not them, that were not Pharisees, that were not set-apart ones. They had terms for them. In any event, point C then. The conflict centered on the relationship and fellowship. The conflict centered on relationship and fellowship. Notice both components are right here. Let's just read through. It says, um, from verse 1, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives, there's relationship, this man receives sinners, and if that wasn't enough, eats with them. Oh my goodness. And there's your fellowship. All right. Receives sinners and eats with them. So we have both a relationship concept and a fellowship concept that forms the basis here. The idea of receiving, just in the first place, even having an entrance in the door, even uh, being admitted onto the grounds, into the property, even being you know, under someone's roof, uh, the Pharisees wouldn't even have such a thing, see, unless they uh, deliberately were trying to set Jesus up for some kind of Sabbath breaking. I think that a couple of these t occasions, uh, like when they were in the Pharisee's house, uh, like in chapter 14, he went to the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees. They were watching him closely, and there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Well, let me tell you something. For the last 10 years of this man's Pharisaical career, he has never had a dropsy victim in his house. Ever. See... It would be scandalous. He would be ruined among his Pharisee uh, compatriots. All right. 
So this whole episode in chapter 14 was a setup from, from minute one. <laughs> you just know that he was there. They were deliberately trying to, uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a guy needing healing in front of Jesus is like a cheeseburger in front of your pastor. I mean, that's just, it's just there to be, to be eaten, right? It's just there. So, uh, you know that when they sat that man up there, it was a, it was a, a, a trap. So anyway, back to chapter 15 then. The idea that he's receiving them. That he would even engage a conversation with them or that he would welcome them into his teaching periphery. Now, keep in mind, again, it's a, it's a pecking order situation with their pride. Uh, the rabbis uh, could build great names for themselves based upon the numbers of people that they had associated with them. The number of disciples, the ones that traveled with them on an itinerant basis from place to place to place. And uh, so the greater those numbers were, the higher the esteem was for the for the rabbi. And then also beyond the itinerant traveling disciples, the uh, the extras, the crowds that you can get in any one particular location. See, and it's the same thing holds true today. If a uh, you know, right now, uh, Sarah Palin's out there on her book tour and she's going to these towns and, and thousands are coming to these book signings, right? And that, I think, scares other people. <laughs> that thousands are coming. And you ask, well, why is that? Why is this person attracting that kind of interest, right? Last year during the campaign, it was even a bit embarrassing because she's on the vice presidential ticket and she's outdrawing uh, John McCain at the top of the ticket. Why is it that his rallies had a third of the people that her rallies were having kind of a thing? So that was too embarrassing for him. And they started scheduling joint appearances together. Well, so, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And today we still have some of the similar concepts is that when you show up, what kind of crowd do you draw? See, musicians, when they come to town, do they need the, the biggest stadium around? Are they going to fill the Irwin Center? Are they going to fill the UT Stadium? Or, you know, can they make do in a pretty much smaller little kind of rinky-dink venue kind of a thing? And the, and the big acts, the top acts that can demand the larger crowds demand the higher fees. See, it's, it's just how it works. So, in any event, the, the Pharisees never, ever would have had uh, such sinners and tax collectors. It's, it would, it's just beneath them. And even worse... Uh, any rabbis that tried to accumulate such rabble, all right, would be accused of being, um, you know, uh, underhanded or nefarious or stooping to unthinkable uh, procedures to try to pad their numbers. Say, oh, the only reason he can get such a following is because he's bringing in the riffraff. He's he's uh, appealing to the to the masses, kind of a thing. And so it's really extraordinary. In, on so many different levels, and the, the hypocrisy especially too, because the riffraff and rabble, for the most part, this is an insane thing, they were very supportive of the Pharisees. They were the, to, the Pharisees were their heroes. They were the freedom fighters, the patriots, the folks that fought on the front lines to, against the, in the Maccabean era against the Seleucids, against the Greeks, and they, they were the ones that stood for the truth of God's word, and they really, really had um, popular opinion among the populace. See, and it, it, they used it. It was a part of their uh, power struggle against the Sadducees. Because right? the Sadducees were viewed as being uh, elite, out of touch, um, appointed by the Herodians, appointed by the Romans, uh, you know, the high priest type of, of uh, situation. So between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, a big part of their political power was the fact that they could uh, stir up the mob. They could uh, get popular support from the mob. The very mob that they despised, that they would never eat with, that they would never minister to. Isn't that unbelievable? And uh, yet, you know, again, am I describing the ancient world or am I talking about today? You know, is there a, a political party today that stirs up the mob and yet views them with such utter disdain because they're so much better than everybody else? It's a remarkable situation. So, am I in Luke 15? Where am I today? All right. The conflict centers on relationship and fellowship. Keep those ideas in mind. And this goes back to terms we've used for years and years and years, the top circle, bottom circle of the diagram, that when you come to faith in Christ, you have relationship with Jesus Christ, and that is never lost. You will have a relationship with God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ, and that is never lost. Fellowship is lost. In the bottom circle, you're in and out 
with sin, carnality, rebellion, everything else. But the uh, top circle is never lost. So relationship is eternal. You are always a son. Even when you're out there in reversionism doing whatever. You cannot lose your salvation. This prodigal that comes back who's begging to be uh, admitted you know, into the household as a slave kind of a thing is, uh, is uh, wrong in his understanding because he's still a son. He's eternally a son. He was a son before he left. He was a son after he left. He's still a son when he comes back. It's a matter of fellowship being restored, not a matter of trying to recreate a brand new relationship on different terms. That's not even possible. All right? And so now I've done it and I've given away the end of the story. And Well, you know it anyway. You know how the, the story works. So this is probably one of the best known chapters in the entire Bible. Even unbelievers have heard this chapter before, right? I mean, am I wrong? I, I'm fairly convinced either this or Psalm 23, maybe at funeral services or something, you know. Uh, it's a very well-known chapter. So let's uh, get a look at it. But again, the conflict centers. He, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So, he told them this parable. The parable, the motivation for telling the parable is the uh, relationship and fellowship conflict here in the sense that these Pharisees and these scribes want nothing to do with uh, the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, finally, in our point D, this uh, parable has three episodes. And I think it's better... I have a self-contradictory slide up here because under main point one, I say three parables teach and emphasize the grace of God in restoring the lost. And then under main point D or sub point D, I highlight the fact that it's one parable. This parable has three episodes and the term parabole uh, with the demonstrative pronoun this. He told them this parable occurs in verse three, but it doesn't occur again. See, when you look down to he tells the parable in three through seven. And then in verse eight, he just simply goes on to the next episode. He says, or what woman doesn't say that he's telling them another parable. He says, oh, and he also told them this parable. He just continues on to the next chapter of the same parable. And then likewise, in verse 11, we're not told that it's a third parable. He doesn't say, and also he went on to teach them this parable. It is. And he said, and so he goes on, a man has two sons. So it's the same parable. This parable in verse 3, this parable identifies the rest of the chapter. The rest of the chapter from 4 to 32. All right, so lost sheep in 4 through 7, lost coin in 8 through 10, and uh, the lost son in uh, 11 through 32. In all three cases, of course, all three episodes, the lost item is Recovered, and that's the good news. All right, well, let's start with lost sheep and see how far we get. Lost sheep. Main point two is lost sheep. Main, it'll have some sub points. Main point three is lost coin. And main point four, are you catching on? <laughs> lost son. There you go. We'll try to keep it as a pretty simple outline as far as uh, we cover it here today. All right, verses four through seven. Oh, I was going to say one more thing on these sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. Remember who the sinners are. Say, well, everybody's a sinner, aren't they? Right? It's one of these terms you want to make make clear on, like Jews. When you have Jews, you say, well, aren't they all Jews? I understand that when these terms are used, it's for a point. All right? And the sinners are the non-observant Jews. Non-observant. They are not ritually clean, and they rarely, if ever, are. They uh, can never participate in the feasts or the sacrifices or the religious uh, worship of their culture because they're very rarely uh, ceremonially purified as far as that goes. They may, they may have occupations that don't even allow them to be purified or they have other, they live in a, in a Gentile city. Uh, many of the villages in Galilee had Gentiles among them and so forth. They, they uh, touch a dead animal or they, uh, they, they're, it may be whatever. I think the, the study that, uh, Mr. Dow did on the tanners was very much to that point, see, because um, if you're on the Tanner Street or that neighborhood or that part of town or in a tanner's home or if that's your occupation, you're never going to participate in, in Passover or, or any of the feasts. You're never you're always touching the animal fat. You're always touching the, the unclean uh, skin of the, of the animal to to uh, to diet and to fashion the leather and so forth. 
So, you know, these kind of guys, what are they going to do? They're never going to be ceremonially clean, see? So how are they going to participate in the rituals and the festivals? And generally they don't. So they, they become non-observant. They're non-practicing, you know, like a non-practicing Christian. They're born again, but they don't go to church. They don't observe anything. They don't, they're just culturally, they'll tell you, oh, yeah, I'm Christian. But what are they? They're not operating in a local church. They're not pursuing their spiritual gift. They're not fulfilling soldier, ambassador, or priestly function. They're just simply non-observant. All right. In fact, I'd probably say maybe, uh, hard to put a number on it, but the bulk of the Catholics I, I run across, you know, they're non-observant. But they'll tell you they're Catholic. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I'm Catholic. I'm Catholic. They're not serious about it until they're getting ready to die or something. You know, They need their last rites or they need, you know, some kind of a thing. But they've done their ceremonies and they've done their rituals and now they can kind of ignore it for most of their life kind of a thing. But don't you dare talk to them about the gospel or salvation or anything because they're, ooh, no, no, I'm Catholic. I'm okay. Non-observant. Okay? So the term sinners here, tax collectors and sinners, the tax collectors... Um, were traitors to the Jewish people because they were uh, the the ones, the agents, uh, gathering the tribute to pay the pay the overlords, the Romans. So anyway, that's uh, just a side trip. But the sinners there are the non-observant Jews, the ones that never ever participate in the rituals, the religious life, the uh, solemn assembly of uh, the nation of Israel. All right, lost sheep. Then verses four through seven. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you, uh, that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven, or there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. And so here we find an address to the men. And the next address uh, in verses 8 and following is going to address the women and in more of a domestic home setting and an item there. We'll discuss that here in a moment. But an address to the men speaks to their work and their livelihood. An address to the men speaks to their work and their livelihood. Take a message and put it in terms of work, and a man can relate to that. Put it in terms of uh, danger. Put it in terms of unpleasant things that need to be done. And a man understands that. And this is where it's going to hit them here in the realm of shepherding. And it doesn't matter even if even if the shepherd is not their particular career. I mean, we know some of them are tax collectors. We don't know what the rest of them are. Carpenters or tanners or, or whatever they are. Um, they understand the idea of work and they understand uh, overtime <laughs> and making it home late from work because something unexpected happened. All right. So this uh, this hits home. And I think the uh, also the community aspect of these shepherds a lot of times entire flocks were belong to a village rather than a, a, an individual family and so you would sometimes have multiple shepherds out there with multiple uh, smaller flocks all combined into a larger flock sort of a thing and uh you can imagine at the end of the day they're getting ready to lead them back they're getting ready to take them back into the sheepfolds at night or they're uh, getting ready to put them up in the pens out there at night before they go into the village themselves um and uh, one of the sheep is lost. One of the 99 is lost. And so he's not going home <laughs> until he finds that sheep. And so, you know, the others, they can go and, and, and put their flocks into, the, into the, uh, the pen. And he can take the remainder of his and put them in the pen and leave it with the, the doorkeeper until morning. Uh, but then the rest of the men are going back into the village to their wives and families and whatnot. And he can't. The shepherd with a lost sheep is going to have to track where that lost sheep went. See, the different skills necessary to track little sheep hoof prints on the on the dirt and track them down to find where they went, where they where they wandered off to, sort of thing. Imagine. Now, uh, secondly, one percent loss of sheep is unacceptable. One percent loss of sheep is unacceptable to a good shepherd. 
I think that's a very important point. It's a huge point. The percentages change in the three episodes. It's a 10% loss to the woman who loses one of her 10 coins. And that's not to say that, uh, you know, that 10% is more urgent than a 1% loss. It's 50% to the dad that's got two sons, right? Does that make it any worse because it's half of his sons? No, even one son is, is not to be lost. Not one coin is to be lost. Not one sheep is to be lost. And I think the, the 1% is uh, interesting in the sense that, um, that we, in our humanity, are very relativistic. In our humanity, we're very, uh, in our imperfections, we get used to it. We're comfortable with it. We learn to accept it. We, we're, we're content in our imperfections because, face it, it's an imperfect world. We're imperfect people. Stuff happens. Uh, you know, as far as that goes, I'd be content with 99%. Most of us probably would, you know. It boggles my mind. Retail stores, different places, they, they know. They've got factors in every year. They know they're going to lose a certain amount through shoplifting, through theft, through loss, through damaged goods, through what have you, see. It's, it boggles my mind. And yet, to them, it's just business. You're going to lose a certain amount every year. You try to minimize it. You've got whole departments that are designed for loss prevention, and you've got uh, cameras and, and police officers and different things you do to try to minimize it. But you know you're not going to eradicate all of it. You know that it's just a, it's a fallen world. There's thieves out there. Stuff gets broken. You, there's just a built-in. It's a cost of business. Built-in. You're going to lose a certain amount of inventory. You're going to lose a certain amount through whatever. And just uh, find that interesting. It's like the cosmos knows what it is and works with it, right? Well, you know, I, I'd be content with 99%, <laughs> but God's not. See, and this is what we want to emphasize is the issue, particularly in a doctrine that centers on a metaphor like sheep, because we're his sheep. And particularly when God the Father provides us to his son at the moment of our salvation, see, it's the Father's will that the son loses not even one, not even one. To the good shepherd, a single loss of sheep is unacceptable. It is contrary to the will of God. And in the idea of perfection is very much the will of God because you, thou shalt be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect as far as eternal perfection is concerned. So this loss of sheep is unacceptable. We notice, again in verse 4, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine. Not just content with the ninety and nine. You leave them. In other words, you, where they're secure, you don't just abandon them. You know, because you, then you lose 99 while you're looking for the one. <laughs> okay? So you leave them, presumably again in that pen we studied in, in John 10 or with the other shepherds, or somehow they're not abandoned, they're not neglected. And you go and you find the one. See, you go and you find the one. This is a um, principle. We address this in our shepherding ministry workshop Sunday night. And uh, we've got to have the recognition, of course, that there's the good shepherd and then there's the under shepherd, the human being that is assigned a particular local church here on planet Earth. See, And uh, quite clearly, uh, Jesus Christ is the good shepherd, head of the church, and I am the under shepherd, pastor of Austin Bible Church. So you've got the good shepherd, you've got the under shepherd as far as that goes. And between the two of them, uh, one of us is omnipresent. And the other one of us is not. All right. And so when it comes to leaving the 99 and going out there to find the lost sheep, who's, uh, who's the one suited to doing that? See, because he can go out there, find that lost sheep, and he's not abandoning the 99. You understand? Whereas the human shepherd is monopresent and under an imperative in First Peter chapter 5 to shepherd the flock of God among you. To shepherd the flock of God among you. And so anyway, we were addressing these passages just Sunday night. And I think it's important for the men that are in training to have an understanding on this. To have an understanding that the sheep that wander, the sheep that are gone, are no longer among you. They're out there in the wild. They're out there in the uh, vulnerable to the wolves and so forth. And, and at that point, your shepherding becomes prayerful. Your shepherding becomes um, 
intercessory prayer, while the good shepherd is the one that can bring them back. Different, uh, different components of things that happen there. So anyway, that's a side trip, but it, it does relate to what we're dealing with here today. Going back now to the Gospel of John, where most of the shepherding uh, language comes from in the, uh, in the Gospels, we have already covered chapter 6 and chapter 10 in our harmony in our chronology, uh, 17 and 18 are still yet future, but just by way of remembrance, in John chapter 6, when he's teaching them about the bread of life, chapter 6 is not shepherding, but it ties in with shepherding when you get it to chapter 10. But in John chapter 6, when he's teaching about the bread of life, one of the I am messages, I am the bread of life, he who comes to me will not hunger, he who believes in me will never thirst. So understand, coming to Christ is the application of faith. It's put in parallel there. Coming to Christ means believing in Him. When you believe in Christ, you come to Christ. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Tremendous eternal security passage and a great uh, salvation passage when you recognize that not only... Uh, what all is involved in getting saved. Uh, things that we're not even aware of, including the God the Father gifting us to His Son. That, that, that's a part of the drawing. The Father draws. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws Him. And so the Father draws. And as the Father draws, He then hands us to His Son. And that's secure. We cannot lose that. So all the Father gives to me will come to me. That's a guarantee. Part of the divine decree, part of what predestination is all about, part of what election, sovereign election is all about. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Down to verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing. Jesus Christ has a 100% retention record. <laughs> Every believer, he has them all. And nothing prevents it. Not even death prevents it. But I raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Guarantee a future resurrection based upon present possession of eternal life and based upon eternal obedience of Jesus Christ to His Father. For you to lose your salvation means that Jesus Christ has to break the will of God the Father. That God the Son has to be disobedient to the will of God the Father. Explain to me how that's possible. All right. Inconceivable. So, uh, there it is. All right. Now, that idea that I lose not even one comes back again in a shepherding context in John 10. And I want to try to keep these in shepherding context because that's what we're dealing with in the, the lost sheep parable. But still, regardless of the imagery, the concept is still there. Jesus loses zero. But in John 10, 28, in, uh, this is the great, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, earlier in the chapter. Verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then um, some of the other, uh, the sheep language continues in verse 26. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. That's why they don't believe. See, if the Father had drawn them, if the Father had... Uh, given them to Jesus Christ, then uh, all the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. But that doesn't include this crowd. They're not saved. And uh, But if you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. Such an important concept. This is what uh, was the key principle in uh, Smithville recognizing that they are a lampstand. They're not just a Bible study, but they're a lampstand. That they are a flock and they hear the voice of their shepherd and the shepherd knows them and they know him. And that mutual reciprocal identification is a powerful concept that led to the, the unanimous conviction of uh, their lampstand status in the will of God. See, and that's the way it ought to be. 
the whole uh, everything else that human beings put into these procedures for pulpit committees and these procedures for all these interviews and resumes and all this other candidating rigmarole. And I just, uh, it's amazing how, uh, you know, Jesus Christ works through that. He's head of the church. He's not thwarted by these goofy procedures people put in place. But it doesn't have to be that complicated. If you can take it back to a shepherd and flock and hear my voice and I know them and they know me, principle, then you can identify with the will of God. And the flock identifies with the will of God under conviction. It's God's will that I'm a sheep that belongs to this shepherd. And the shepherd is under conviction. It's God's will that I'm the shepherd uh, allotted to, uh, that these sheep are allotted to my charge. And every believer in conviction to the will of God, there you go. Should we take a vote? <laughs> All right. As far as that goes, I'm, I'm convinced every vote, every vote is, ought to be, ought to be a faith conviction, a, a confession of a faith conviction. And if you can't draft your vote proposal in a language of a uh, conviction, a faith conviction, then uh, you ought to evaluate what you're voting on anyway. Because it's not a vote for or against or it's not a popularity contest. It's not a majority rules situation. It's simply a confession as to a faith conviction regarding the will of God. All right, so stay tuned for some things in that regard. Now, over in chapter 10, where I still am, uh, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. See, even if their physical body dies, they have eternal life. They cannot perish. And notice, no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's still in the shepherding context and snatching of a sheep. It's not going to happen. He's the good shepherd. My Father who has given them to me is greater than I, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, isn't that neat? I love that. Because the Father has given us to the Son. But that doesn't mean He's let go. See, He's given us to the Son, but He's still holding on. When the Son takes hold, now... We belong to both. We're in both the Father's hand and the Son's hand. You notice that? My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So we saw in chapter 6 that to lose your salvation, uh, Jesus has to disobey the Father and lose something that He's given Him, which He's commanded not to do. And then secondly... You have to overcome omnipotence twice, because if you're going to lose, if you're that bad of a sinner and you can overcome omnipotence twice, how nonsensical is that? You are mighty enough to overpower God the Father's omnipotence and get out of His hand, and mighty enough to get out of God the Son's omnipotence and uh, get out of His hand. You're held by two omnipotent hands. You're not that omnipotent, all right? No one is. I don't care how bad a sinner you are. There's no created thing, nothing in the heavens, on the earth. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I and the Father are one. And so, of course, they want to stone him and all these other things. But the verse we're driving at is that 28th verse. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them, not even one. He retains 100% of every sheep that God gives him. Now, there is one stated exception in chapter 17, and I don't think it's a clear exception to the rule. He does lose a sheep, but the reason why is because he was a phony sheep to begin with. In John 17, God the Father actually gave an unbeliever to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that was... By design, in the plan. Interestingly enough, part of his high priestly prayer. This chapter is the real Lord's Prayer, not the one that's usually called the Lord's Prayer. But he's um, praying for these disciples and the fact that he's going to be leaving them to go to uh, sit at the Father's right hand and they're going to still be in the world. And... Um, they're going to need to be kept from the evil one. Then verse 12, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, 
and not one of them perished, but, and here's the one lone exception, the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Now, when you do your full study on Judas Iscariot, you understand that he was never a believer in the first place. And there's testimony to that. I mean, he says that not all of you are mine. And the, and the recognition that he was never saved in the first place. The recognition that he's possessed by Satan. As a believer, you can't be demon-possessed. And there's other things that uh, contribute towards that as well. And this uh, it's a verse that you cannot twist or use. People might try to say, well, see there, you can be given to Christ and be lost. No. This is the one and only singularity of any sheep, quote-unquote sheep, but a, a soul that was given to Jesus Christ that uh, the Father knew and the Son knew right up front that it would not be a soul ever saved. Allowed to be a disciple. Allowed to be an apostle. Provided the Holy Spirit to do miracles. He, he was given the empowerment to do every miracle that the other 11 apostles were given. Including raising the dead. Including casting out demons. Isn't that something? Cast him out of himself while he was at it, right? <laughs> Humbled himself and gotten saved. How about that? Well, the son of perdition. Fascinating title there. It's only used there and in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 with reference to Antichrist. The beast, the man of lawlessness in the tribulation. Only Judas and the beast are called son of perdition. So, with him as the sole exception, are you Judas Iscariot? Well, then... You can't lose your salvation, and he was never saved to begin with. Finally, chapter 18 and verse 9. And I love this. They uh, <laughs> they come to arrest him. And and this, I don't know, I've, I've maybe it's my law enforcement background. I've served warrants. I've executed arrests. And uh, every time I read this, I laugh because they, they've got him totally surrounded and they ask who he asks, who do you seek? And they answer Jesus the Nazarene, and he says, I am. Imagine that. And Judas also, who is betraying him, was standing with him. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. <laughs> right? Man. I ask again, whom do you seek? Jesus the Nazarene. I told you I am. Anyway. Uh, so if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom thou hast given me. I lost not one. Even Peter with his heroics there is not going to be lost. All right. One percent loss of sheep is unacceptable to a good shepherd. Point C. Understand these shepherds are tough characters. Trained for fighting wild beasts. The shepherd brings back whatever he can salvage. The live sheep is the ultimate for rejoicing. He is not going to come back to the village without that sheep, alive or dead. He will come back with, at the very least, a fleece, the remains. If all he can bring back is an ear, he's bringing something back or he's not coming home. Which means he's going to track it down however far it traveled. He's going to kill whatever animal it is that, that got him. See, you got this idea that a shepherd is just kind of a little, kind of a slight, uh, effeminate, kind of uh, uh, wimpy. Yeah, he's out there. He's playing a harp or a flute kind of a thing. He's got his little pan whistle going, and he's just kind of a little... No. First Samuel 17... We studied this in the life of David. First Samuel 17. God was not out of his mind when he took a shepherd and made him king. Shepherd is perfectly suited to be a king. Because he understands the blunt reality of this harsh world. He understands that you don't negotiate with wild beasts. You kill them. Hmm. Maybe he wasn't the most diplomatic or politically correct, but he knows his friends, he knows his enemies, and he takes care of his. That's a shepherd mentality. And that's why um, David was a shepherd, became Israel's greatest king. That's why Jesus is a shepherd, becomes this world's greatest king. And that's why... Uh, God designed the church age to be structured under the 
language of flock and shepherd. It's what it's got to be. So 1 Samuel 17, now this is the Goliath chapter, and we're familiar with that. And, and uh, David's got older brothers that are all happy to be serving in the, uh, as officers in uh, King Saul's army. And uh, David at this point is uh, 14, 12. Uh, he can't be too old or he would, be, been, would have been with his brothers in the army. I, I don't imagine he was, I think he was under 14. And I, I think I settled on either 10 or 12 when we taught this in the life of uh, David's series. Because uh, had he been 14, he already would have been a, a man. He already would have been a son of the covenant. He already would have been uh, with his brothers in the army. So I'm guessing he was 10 or 12 at this point when Samuel anointed him and when he was still tending his brother's flocks. Now, his brothers are off to war and he's tending the flock. And then uh, Jesse sends him off to uh, bring some supplies, some food and weapons and whatever he was bringing them to the brothers there. And uh, so David is on a mission to go from Bethlehem to uh, the Valley of Elah here. And uh, he's in charge of the servants. He's in charge of the baggage train. He's in charge of all the animals. And uh, this kind of responsibility is, is no big deal. He's used to dealing with it. So um, David arose, uh, I'm reading from verse 20, I guess. David arose early in the morning and left the flock with the keeper. See, there's the keeper, the doorkeeper. You put him in the pen, they're safe. Then uh, he takes the supplies and went as Jesse commanded him. And when he came to the circle of the camp, you know, how many days did he have to travel to get from Bethlehem to the Valley of Elah? Came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper. So however many donkeys or camels or whatever the, the animal train was, there were multiple animals and there was a baggage keeper. There's slaves, there's servants. And uh, they're answering to this guy, this 12-year-old son, 10-year-old son. All right. Now, admittedly, they, if they're slaves, they belong to Jesse or if they're servants or whoever they work for Jesse. Uh, but still, they understand that David is the sovereignty of this expedition. And he runs to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. And as he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gathnim, Goliath, was coming and taunting. He'd been doing this day after day after day. And, and, and here I find this interesting. We don't have the whole story here, but he runs to the battle line. All right. <laughs> Show me a 10-year-old, 12-year-old kid today that's going to run to the battle line, the front line of troops on a, on a uh, battlefield, on a military uh, battlefield, see. And yet, he has no fear in any of that. I find that extraordinary. Whatever uh, guards were posted, whatever challenge and password was given, whatever he identified himself to grown men, to soldiers, as uh, the son of Jesse, reporting to uh, his brothers and uh, in their division, he knew the men he was looking for. He knew what division they were. He knew where to find them. He knew how to operate with military protocol. In any event, then he hears this taunting. And he can't believe that they haven't killed this Philistine already. <laughs> All right. Why is he still breathing air? You wonder. And so... Uh, they're afraid, and, and uh, they said, have you seen this guy? Look how big he is. And he's no more impressed with Goliath than, than Caleb and Jonathan were, or Caleb and Joshua were, at, uh, at the giants in their day. See, the ten spies wanted to go back to Egypt. Caleb and Joshua were like, what are you talking about? Let's go kill these guys. God's given us these land. And here's David with the same faith attitude. God gives the victory. So uh, Eliab, his oldest brother, in verse 28 Gets angry. Why have you come down? You know, snot punk little brother kid kind of thing, right? Why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? How insulting. How scornful. You get the idea here that Eliab is rather ashamed of Jesse. He's rather mocking because he's now in the big time. He's left home. He's now serving King Saul. Things are great. He's, uh, he's a man of valor. He's a man of battle. And things are looking up in the world since he got out of that... Uh, that tiny little village of Ephrathah, that tiny little Bethlehem location. And now he's in the big time. He's serving in this army. And that pitiful little flock, those few sheep in the wilderness. 
I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart. You know, it's always interesting, the pot calling the kettle black. What happens more often than not is this is reflecting his own attitude, his own insecurities, his own lust for glory. And so he just assumes, because that's what he's lusting after, that David wants the same thing. He's going to try to steal it before he can steal it. Wickedness of your heart, you've come down in order to see the battle. And David's like, what have I done now? I'm just asking a question. So he turns away from his brother and he starts asking the same thing. He's not intimidated by his older brother. Anyway, he comes to Saul, and here's what I'm getting at. Um, he comes to, he's presented before the king. He wants to know, why, uh, why is this Philistine still alive? Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And you know how insulting that is. <laughs> he's just eager to do it. Ten-year-old kid, twelve-year-old kid, let me go do it. I'll go kill this Philistine. And yet, <laughs> he's basically telling King Saul, you're not man enough to go do it. I'll go do it. <laughs> so Saul says to David, you're not able. You can't do it. Saul in his human viewpoint is all caught up on human ability. Saul's afraid he can't do it either. You're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth. Well, he has been a warrior from his youth. You're just 10 years old. He's been killing people since he was 10. But David said to Saul, your servant, now here's all that's background to get to this point here while we give you the story on shepherding. Because shepherds, shepherds are not pansies. All right? Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went running to daddy and said, daddy, 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 there's a lion, help me. Is that what he said? No. I went out after him and attacked him. And that's something. Nowadays, we don't even let our kids walk across the street to the park without an adult walking with them. <laughs> All right. When a lion or a bear came, took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued him from his mouth. You know, I mean, where is the sheep when the lion's running off with it? It's in his mouth. You know, the business end of the lion, we, were, we might say. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. And it's the same language that, that's used of uh, Samson when he grabs a lion barehanded and kills the lion. There's no mention of a weapon here. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine, see both the lion and the bear. I mean, how many times does this happen? It's just a day at the office. If you're a shepherd, it's normal. Kill both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Who cares if he's nine feet tall and 350 pounds? It doesn't matter. He's not a lion. He's not a bear. He's taunted the armies of the living God. And he needs to die. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. All right. Trained for fighting wild beasts. The shepherd brings back whatever he can salvage. We've got a minor prophet series coming up. One of those minor prophets is Amos. Amos. Amos chapter 3. How often do you turn to the book of Amos? Do you even know where it is? There's a table of contents in the front of your Bible. A little. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Get to Obadiah, you've gone too far. You ought to know Amos. Amos is famous. The, um, hmm. It's a whole message here that I'm eager to get into because I think the minor prophets are vividly consistent with our own culture and decline. Israel was on the verge of destruction. The northern kingdom was destroyed. The southern kingdom would then later be destroyed. And as their empire, as their kingdom fell into disobedience, sin, destruction, we see a lot of parallels with our own country today. And so uh, these minor prophets are going to be a, a good study for us coming up on Sundays. The um, 
Verse 9 says, Proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod and the citadels in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressions in her midst. But they do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord, those who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an enemy, even one surrounding the land, will pull down your strength from you and your citadels will be looted. Thus says the Lord, and here's the, here's the metaphor, but it teaches what we're looking at today. Just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with a corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. See, when Assyria swept that northern kingdom away, they were gone, removed from human history. They're not the lost tribes, as it were. God preserved a remnant, but he snatched a couple of legs and an ear, and he took faithful believers from those tribes, got them snatched out safely down in Jerusalem, safely down in the southern kingdom of Judah. They're not lost tribes. They're not missing tribes, as far as that goes, in any event. The metaphor from verse 12 will save the rest of the destruction of the northern kingdom for future studies, but... The, uh, the language is there. A shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear. Get what you can. And then kill the lion and get what you can off of him. <laughs> right? Take his fur. Take his meat. Or whatever else you're going to do with him. Actually, he's an unclean animal. If they're devout, they wouldn't eat a lion. But be that as it may. But if you can, and you come back with a live sheep... Oh my goodness, that's the greatest rejoicing of all right there. You're coming back with the live sheep. The live sheep is the ultimate for rejoicing. Not only our text in Luke 15, verses 5 and 6, but also what I'll leave you with is Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. All right, he's not a minor prophet, he's a major prophet. Ezekiel 34. And it's not a superior, inferior thing. They just The title is unfortunate. It, has, it only has to do with their, the shortness of their... Of their text, the fact that all twelve of them fit on a single scroll meant that uh, the you know the publishers in the ancient world could combine them into a single scroll and and uh, make for ease of copying and compilation and all the rest. Ezekiel 34, and this is um, the woe passage. The woe passage because the shepherds of Israel have been uh, falling down on the job. Starts off in verse 1 with, Woe, shepherds of Israel. And you recognize that it's a metaphor used of the king, the princes, the tribal elders, the priests, the Levites, anyone in a spiritual shepherding capacity, husbands to their wives, parents to their children, tribal elders to their tribes, princes to their tribes, kings to their nation. Of course, priests and Levites, they would all fall under shepherding language. And they're not feeding the flock. They're feeding themselves and they're dominating the flock with force and severity. You have dominated them in verse 4. Terrible. If you're going to be the tyrant shepherd instead of the, the good shepherd in sacrificial agape love laying down your life for the sheep, then the good shepherd is going to fire you. And so uh, I'm against you, he says in verses 7 through 10. For thus says the Lord God in verse 11, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, I will care for my sheep. I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own lands. I will feed them on the mountains. I think uh, there's a lot of I wills here. You notice that? You ever consider a parallel between these I wills and Satan's I wills? It's an interesting study. Jesus Christ's I wills are all about being a good shepherd. It's a faithful, faithful study. But as for you, in verse 17, <laughs> anyway, it's a great passage. I'm out of time. But uh, this is what the lost sheep is about. And God is, is uh, or Jesus is trying to get across to these Pharisees that the tax collectors and, and sinners are not to be scorned or dismissed or rejected or laughed at or, or considered as throwaways. They're sheep. They belong to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And um, 
Well, we'll come back to that again. Lost coin. You don't just say, well, I still have 10. Cut my losses and be, be content. No, the number to complete it is 10. And if you lose one, then it's not complete. Anyway, we'll uh, address that again next week. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for our day today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.